Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. We're looking at the six core habits of Jesus that power life. If you go through and see the way that Jesus ministered, operated, we said that perhaps the best way to describe him was relaxed. And that is because the degree to which uh, the engine of your car is healthy is the degree to which the rest of life is healthy and relaxed and so true it is of our lives. The degree to which your engine room, your spiritual health is, is healthy is the degree to which the rest of life seems to flow. And so we've been learning about Jesus' core habits. Week one, he had a habit of Holy Spirit dependence. Loretta calls it nudging. But we call that a Holy Spirit dependence. Jesus just wondered uh, what God was up to and he listened for the leading of the Spirit. He also had a habit of prayer. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. We said your offens are the things that you don't realise you're doing but everyone else does. And for Jesus it was prayer. Last week, M talked about Jesus' obedience to a kingdom of agenda. He was always asking, Lord, what are you up to today? And can I be a part of that? And in that leading, he constantly chose the will of the Father. And this morning now, we look at his fourth key habit, and that is Jesus was always working out the word of God. You know, it's funny, I, look, I think back to a time that I had in Lima in Peru, of all places. I was uh, sitting in the foyer of the hotel that my dad and I were staying at. We were about to head up to the plane to go to Cusco at Machu Picchu and we were running late for our plane and we were also waiting for our taxi driver and as we were sitting there in the foyer we're getting more and more nervous we're getting more and more worried that we're not going to make our plane and all the time there was this weird guy sitting over on the other corner from us there was no one around it was like eight o'clock in the morning this weird guy sitting in the corner just staring us the whole time. And we're so um, anxious that we're not going to make this plane flight. We eventually get up and in broken Spanish, we tried to ask the guy at reception where the heck this taxi driver was. And he turns to us calmly and says, he's just there. <laughs> the weird guy staring at us in the corner for, for the past hour was the taxi driver. <sighs> Needless to say, we got in the taxi, tore through the streets, we just made our plane. Just, did we? Yeah, just, hey, you know, I think we can treat the word of God in exactly the same way. I put it to you that you might treat the word of God the same way. You, you need to get to a destination. You're stuck in the spiritual fire of your life. You're, you're trapped in there. There is anxieties, there's concerns, there's bitterness, there's anger, there's rage. There's all of these things happening in your life. You're crying out to God. You're wondering, where is... Where are you in all of this, Lord? Where, what are you going to do with me in all of this, Lord? And, and God says, it's just here. That is that it's present in our life, but we don't use it. I know that is my challenge when I come to look at the Word. And so that's why this morning I want to show you how Jesus used the Word of God. What can we learn from how he used the word of God. Here's the first thing that I see in the three habits that Jesus had when he worked out the word of God. Here's the first thing. Jesus not only understood the word of God, but he stood under the word of God. Over 80 times throughout the New Testament scriptures, you see Jesus quoting 70 different instances of the Old Testament scriptures, which was his Bible, by the way. Jesus was constantly quoting the scriptures. He understood the scriptures. He studied them in everyday events of life. But most importantly, and I want us to get this, 
He didn't just understand the scriptures, he stood under the scriptures. And that's why we read from this passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. He says here, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What's that saying to you about Jesus' theology of the word of God? Here's what it says to me. Not the least stroke of a pen. That was a yod. It meant like a little, a little dot in, in, the, in the Hebrew letters. Not the least dot is going to be left out of these things. I haven't come to abolish this. I've come to fulfill this. What this says to us is that for Jesus, the scriptures, the word of God was the ultimate authority in his life. Jesus stood under the scriptures. It was his ultimate reference point. You know, there's a running joke in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie saying that we have to we have to live by and follow the code except the problem was they're always they were always breaking the code and so they were going to live by the code but they're always breaking the code and whenever someone said hang on aren't you breaking the code they go oh no well we just sort of see them as a set of guidelines <laughs> don't you think the average person treats the word of god that way Isn't that how the average Sydney side of the average Christian, dare I say it, thinks about the Bible? The logic goes like this. There are parts of the Bible that are good, but then there are parts of the Bible that are offensive, and I can't stand that part of the Bible, so I'm just not going to read that part of the Bible. We're going to follow the code, but it's just a set of guidelines. Now, I, I can't address the specifics with you, but when we push up against that, um, can, can I say th- there's two dynamics behind all of this and two answers to that mindset that, The average person and even the average Christian has. Here's the first one. Could it be that the Bible is not really teaching what you think it's teaching? You know, you see the bits of the Old Testament that people have uh, so many problems with. You know, Abraham uh, had many wives. Isn't the Bible teaching all about polygamy? Back then, uh, or you see the example of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, and isn't the Bible always teaching not only polygamy but primogeniture? In other words, the eldest always gets the best, survival of the fittest. And what is really interesting in all of that is that there was a guy, Robert Alter, who wrote a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative. And he said there were these two institutions in ancient culture, polygamy, primogeniture, where the oldest gets everything. And he says, when you go through and read the Old Testament scriptures, in every generation in the Bible, polygamy wreaks havoc. In every generation, primogeniture, God favours the younger kid over the older one. So in other words, when you go through and read the scriptures, could it be that it's actually not teaching what you think it's teaching? The Bible is subverting these attitudes that we find offensive and it's upholding the very things that we find pleasing about it all. So could it be that it's not actually teaching what you think it's teaching? But here's the second answer to this notion of, oh, the Bible's culturally regressive. The Bible can't be the overarching authority in my life. I can't believe every word of the Bible. Here's the second answer to that. Could it be that you are assuming some cultural superiorities over the way that you read the Bible? So, for example, we Sydney-siders, we look at what the Bible says about sex 
And it's to be in a covenant relationship. And we say, that is regressive. That's so old. That's so thousand years ago. And when it comes to forgiveness, we go, oh, that's wonderful and it's beautiful. But here's the thing. What if you went to the Middle East and took those two parts of the Bible? <laughs> if you go and take, uh, the Bible says that uh, in its view on sex in the Middle East, they might say it's not strict enough. And if you want to talk about forgiveness over there, oh, how dare you talk about a grace-filled religion? Now, can you see how there's a cultural lens on the way that we read the Bible? Could it be that you, are, you have a cultural superiority that you're assuming into reading the Bible? If, it's, if parts of the Bible offend you, why should your cultural sensibilities assump and, uh, and assumptions trump everyone else? Now, let's, pour, let's ground it. Let's, let's get, everyone's getting a nosebleed from the theology here. Let's just, let's just, let's just get, get grounded here. It is clear, not the least stroke of a pen, Jesus saw the scriptures, every part of the scriptures, as the ultimate authority over his life. And if Jesus saw that over his life, then wouldn't it be true as followers of Jesus that we would think the same? I mean, it's like saying, uh, yeah, look, I love the queen, I, I follow the queen, but I'm not into the monarchy. Uh, hello? The queen is the monarchy. <laughs> And so for us as followers of Jesus to say, well, you know, the, the Bible, it's got some good bits in it. I'll, I'll take it, but it's not the authority over my life. If that was Jesus' view of the scriptures and Jesus is the Bible and Jesus is our Lord, then, then he is the monarchy. Does your view of the Bible look like this? There's a lot of good stuff in it, but I can't believe everything in it. 50 go, years ago, we, we believed this, but come on now, we're modern people. Can you see what you've done? You're, you're seeking to understand the word, but you're not standing under the word. And the question is, if you're not standing under the word, like what will you stand under? If the Bible is not your ultimate reference point, then what will be science? Science can only ever tell us what is. It can't tell us what ought to be. Culture? Culture, 100 years ago, there were things that were socially acceptable that today we just think is ridiculous. Society, will you even ever get right and wrong from society in this age of per, per, political correctness? Your own heart is the ultimate reference point. Three years ago, you were doing things that you look back on and go, I had no idea back then, right? I can't believe I thought that. What will be the ultimate authority in your life? You've got to wrestle it out. You've got to work out the word of God. You've got to make up your mind, which will it be? And if we step out from under the Bible and that paradigm of allowing it to be the ultimate authority in our life, what it means in that point, in that moment, what we're really saying is, Lord, you're not God, I'm God. And can I suggest to you that that is a frightening place to be? <laughs> that is a scary place to be. So the first thing that we see when Jesus comes to the Bible is he understood his Bible, but most importantly from his example, he stood under the Bible. It was good enough for Jesus, for the Bible, to be his ultimate reference point. Here's the second thing, the second habit in his life that he did. He used the word of God as the reference point for his life, the resource for his life. We see that Jesus didn't just believe in the authority of the Bible, he lived it out. Now, here's a question for you. What made Jesus great? Jesus... 
comes in, born, grows up, is a man, he faces persecution, loneliness, misunderstanding, rejection, and he never wavers in the face of, of these circumstances. What makes him great? What, makes, what gives him the resources to do this? How did he stay true to what he did? Here's the answer, gagraptai. Gagraptai, of course, I knew you were thinking that. Gagraptai. Jesus was always saying, Gagraptai, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. What about the time when Luke chapter 4, when he's in the desert with Satan and Satan is tempting him and Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Satan tempts him again, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is written, it is written. Here's the revelation I had from this passage this week. Do you know... That every attack that Satan pushes onto Jesus was not an attack on his personality or his emotions. It was an attack on the word of God. If you read through, you see in every time that Satan tries to to twist the word of God. Why? Because he knows that the word of God is powerful. He knows that the word of God is the thing. If he can just get Jesus off track on the word of God, then he gets Jesus off track in life. And Jesus had the nous to gagraptai. It is written. Hey, have you ever heard the phrase, sticks and stones might break my bones, but names will never hurt me? Yeah? What a load of rubbish. Don't you reckon? Well, the only one who believes that is an eight-year-old. Because we, we have a whole area of law that is dedicated to the principle that names do hurt you. It's called defamation. And there's a whole whole range of people who will go to great lengths and spend thousands of dollars to ensure that the names that are thrust upon them don't stick. Why? Because I believe the average person doesn't gagraptai. The average person doesn't have a resource that whenever an attack on your reputation or your identity flows into your life, you don't have the resources for it to naturally flow from you to rebuke that and to rebut that and say, hang on, it is written. It is written that I'm a child of God. It is written that I am loved and accepted. It is written that there is an inheritance for me in heaven that will never perish, spoil or fade. It is written, it is written. Can you imagine what life would look like if Christians actually lived with Gagraptai? How how few people would get slighted in church? How few people would get offended? Oh, it is written. Jesus used... The word of God as the resource to get him through life. In fact, as Spurgeon once said, that Jesus was so soaked with scripture that his language was bibline. Whenever he talked, it just flowed out of him. Can I ask you, are you so soaked with scripture that that's what your life looks like? What made Jesus great? Hello, the Bible, (laughs) the word of God. That every time these things came into his life, he cut through the pressure and the persecution and the attack like a hot knife cuts through, through butter. So a couple of questions for you. Do you live with that sort of resource? Whenever you cut Jesus, he bled scripture. Do you bleed scripture? And if the Bible, this is the one I want you to get, if the Bible is not the resource to get you through life, then what is? Who stole my cheese? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? 
They're they're great books, but they they won't speak into life the way that the Word of God does and the way that Jesus modelled. If there's no reference point, point number one in your life, if there is no reference point in your life as the Scripture is the ultimate authority, you're going to be bounced around life like a pinball. And if you don't have that gravity in you, then you'll have no gagrapta. You won't have the resources to speak straight into the attack that comes your way. Jesus says this is central to how I cut through life. Is this central to yours? That makes sense. How do you get this way? Remember we said that in his humanity, it means that Jesus didn't get an automatic download of the scriptures into the back of his head like some scene out of the Matrix. He wasn't, he wasn't, pre, he wasn't pre-fired. He's not like a, it's not like the new MacBook Pro that comes out. It doesn't get preloaded with the operating system. He had to learn how to do that. And we see this in Luke chapter 2. There's a wonderful passage, one of the funniest stories in the Bible. Jesus is there in Jerusalem during one of the, the festivals. And his mum and dad go away for three days. They get almost all the way back up to home. They start to open up the garage door in Nazareth and they look around to put the kids back into the house and give him a bath and they turn around and say, where's Jesus? And they, they, have, they have to trudge all the way back down to Jerusalem to go and find him. And here's what he says when they find him. Verse 45 of Luke chapter 2. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. How did Jesus have this sort of resource in life? How did he work out the word? Here's the third and final one this morning. Jesus just didn't search the scriptures. He allowed the scriptures to search him, which is a weird way to think about the Son of God. But what was he doing as a, little, as a 12-year-old boy? Like every good Jewish boy, he's probably learnt by memory all of the first five books of the Bible. And here he was with the teachers of law in the temple courts, asking, probing, what does this mean? What does it mean that the, that the Messiah should come out of Beth, Beth, Bethlehem? I, I was born in Bethlehem. Oh, what, what, what does it mean that, that, that he, will, he will bear all... All the birds, he'll be crushed for their transgressions. What, what could that mean? And, and what's his answer at the end of the revelation with those teachers? He says to mum and dad, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? And it says Joseph and Mary had no idea what he was talking about. There was a revelation from God because he not only searched the scriptures, but the scriptures searched him. What I want to say is that there are lots of truth books out there. But not every truth book will change you the way that this book can change you. I mean, you could go home and read the phone book. There's a lot of truth in that. (laughs) It's not going to change you. And that is because there's two ways of reading. There's reading for information and there's reading for transformation. And friends, dare I say that many Christians over their life have read for information? You know, there are Harvard professors out there that know the Bible 50 times better than I do as one of your pastors. But do you think they're Christians? No. Because they read for information, not transformation. There's two ways to read this. John 5.39, Jesus got this. He's a grown-up now. 
He says to the teachers of the law, you diligently study the scriptures because you think by them alone you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, Jesus is not criticizing their use of the word of God here. What he is criticizing in that, sorry, he's not criticizing their view of the word of God here, he's criticizing their use. That they, they, they use it just to, to check themselves against it. They're reading for information. They're reading for religiosity. You see, when you read the Bible that way for information, here's what happens. It doesn't make you better. It might make your conscience better. Because you read bits and say, yeah, I do that, I do that, I do that. <laughs> you see, your conscience is getting better, but, but you're not getting better. Because you're searching the scriptures, but the deep question is, are you allowing these scriptures to search you? How do we do that? I'm going to give you a diagram now up here. I'm going to give you 30 seconds on this. This is from the navigators back in the 60s. See, I told you the older generation were the B-52s who says you need new modern snazzy diagrams to understand Christianity here. Here are the five ways in the illustration of a hand that you can work out the word of God. The, the, The least strongest way the pinky finger is to hear the word of God to be under good teaching, to listen to good teaching. The next one is to read the word of God. That gives you the overview of the scriptures. You can't understand the whole story unless you've at least got that information in you somehow. Then the next one, that middle finger there, is to study the word of God. That's when it gets serious. I call that the devil finger. That's, that's how Jesus could do what he was doing back there in Luke 4. He was, he was doing navigators. He gave the devil the middle finger. <laughs> then there's a memorizing scripture. Only until you start taking that into your mind can you now gugraptai. Can you start to spit that back out and can you, your language be bibline? And then the thumb, the strongest of all, what I like about thumb, meditating on the word, is that the thumb is meant to be used in conjunction with all four at various points in time. So a great model to understand this is how you work out the word of God. I just put it all there for the visual learners this morning. Want to know? You know those practical ones in a sermon that says, Sam, you're all theology. I just want to know what to do. Talk to the hand. <laughs> you can read... You can read for truth, but you can also read for transformation. Allow, friends, the scriptures to search you. Allow the scriptures to transform you. I suggest to you it will not happen until you come to that spiritual paradigm that says, I will let it be the authority over my life. I may not understand it all, but I will start there. Then I will choose to use it the way that Jesus used it. And most importantly, I will allow it to search me. As we finish this morning, uh, my uncle, he's, uh, he's, he's an in- interesting sort of guy. A few here at Northside have, have met him. He, uh, he bought a Toyota Camry and he drove it for two to three years without ever 
uh, putting any oil in the thing. And so he, he turns up to my cousin who's a motor mechanic and the thing's coming down the driveway and it's screeching. The whole engine is just about seized. My cousin Howard just listens to the thing and he says, Bruce, 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 like, what the heck are you doing? And he goes around to the driver's door and he rips open the glove box and he, he pulls out the manual from the glove box and, and he says to him, did you ever put oil in the car? And Bruce says, no. Why didn't you put oil in the car? I didn't know I had to. And he holds up the manual to him. He says, well, did you read this? <laughs> I didn't think I had to. <laughs> what well, says here, every, every six months you put oil in the car. And thankfully, for those that are nervous, the camera's okay. <laughs> Here's the thing. I've wanted to reach in to your life today and I've wanted to open up the glove compartment in your car and I wanted to rip this out. And I wanted to say to you, what if... What if God had designed an operating manual for the human life? And what if, friend, the groans and the creaks and the seizing up of the engine in your life is a little bit more than bad luck, but quite possibly because you have not been living the human life according to the designer's purposes? Hebrews 4 says, This thing is a double-edged sword. It is powerful. It is active. It searches the heart. It convicts. It judges. Friend, work out the Word of God in your life this week. Let's pray. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.